0: Our reading from God's word this morning is from Acts chapter 1, reading from verse 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 26. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago, through the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. And then in parentheses, with the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, akaldema, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of the Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become with us a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men. Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Last week we began our study in the book of Acts, which is the historical account of the early church. And in this time, when we as a church are very deliberately fixing our attention on the person of Jesus, the book of Acts shows us what happens when a community is inspired and fixated upon the person of Jesus. And the basic theme of the whole book of Acts, 28 chapters, is this. The word of God concerning Jesus increases, and the church of Jesus multiplies as Christians, empowered by God's Spirit, Jesus until He returns. Are we okay? Should I do some positive feedback? We're okay. So the book of Acts is this, the word of God concerning Jesus increases, advances, moves forward, and the church of Jesus simultaneously multiplies as Christians empowered by God's spirit witness to the risen Jesus until he returns. That's the book of Acts right there in a nutshell. And last Sunday, we were in chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Jesus, with whom the disciples have spent three years, Jesus whom they have seen crucified and buried... This Jesus spends 40 days with them, resurrected and very much alive. He commissions them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then before their very eyes, he ascends in a cloud of glory. And then angels appear with the promise that Jesus will return someday in the same way that they've just seen him go. And in our text Today, the second half of chapter 1, we have the followers of Jesus after Jesus left at his ascension, and before the Holy Spirit comes to them in Acts chapter 2. So it's an in-between time, it's a waiting time for them. But in this time, as we look at them, we already see what kinds of things characterize the community that is the followers of Jesus, whether then in Jerusalem or in Calgary, even today. And it's this, a praying, united community, witnessing to the Jesus that they know. That is church, a praying, united community, witnessing to the Jesus, the risen Jesus, whom they know. So let's walk through this text together. Verse 12 begins just by informing us, very simply, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, or about a kilometer, away. This is already their very first act of obedience. Jesus had commanded them, ordered them, to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit would fall upon them. So they're obeying, and they are starting off well. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, when they got back to Jerusalem, they went right away to the upper room where they had been staying. And Luke lists the apostles. But there are only 11. Judas, it turns out, is dead. He has acquired a field with the blood money that he'd received for his betrayal of Jesus. And there he had fallen so hard that his body literally had burst open. That's a a horrible, more so a tragic ending for Judas, isn't it? I mean, he had spent three years with Jesus. He had heard Jesus teaching. He had witnessed Jesus miracles. He had seen Jesus raise somebody from the dead. He had been there when Jesus told a storm to quit it, and it did. He had observed the character of Jesus, his righteousness, his goodness, his love. He had seen demons submit to the authoritative word of Jesus. And yet somehow Judas had missed it entirely. That is the great tragedy, to be in the community of Jesus, to be surrounded by the things of Jesus, and yet to miss him entirely. And yet that's a pretty common tragedy. I grew up in a church that I know now didn't understand the things of Jesus. And we grew up in that church and many of us missed it and didn't connect with Jesus until much later. A lot of people grow up in a church surrounded by the people and the things and the words of Jesus, and yet miss Jesus. Happens all the time. And I'm not sure that there's a greater tragedy than that in the life of a church. And that's why we are so right now intentional and deliberate about Fixing our attention on Jesus because it is all about Him. We want to listen to Him. We want to look to Him. We want to be like Him. We want to learn from Him. We want to interact with Him. We want to talk about Him because He is the center of who we are, He is the center of what we do. And right now, downstairs, we've got quite a few children for whom it would be the, a greater tragedy than any other tragedy you can think of, quite frankly. For them to grow up here, and when they're old enough to leave, they leave. And not just leave church, but leave Jesus entirely. And that happens when churches miss Jesus. When we're not Jesus-centered, when we're issue-centered, or when we are church-centered, or tradition-centered, or program-centered, or something-centered on anything that isn't Jesus, then we immediately begin the drift And before very long, we're missing Jesus entirely, and our children are missing him entirely as well. Judas, three years with Jesus, and yet missed him. News of what had happened to Judas eventually got around all of Jerusalem, and the field where he had fallen was nicknamed the field of blood because of his death there. So, now there are 11 apostles And Jesus has told them to wait, and so that's what they do. But their waiting is not an inactive waiting. Not at all. They pray. And it's not just the 11 apostles who pray. The company of people there is about 120. Some of the women who had followed Jesus, that Luke tells us about in Luke 8. Some of the women who had been at the cross, John talks about those. Maybe people were there like Lazarus. And Mary and Martha, who lived very close to Jerusalem, maybe Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus had followed Jesus the week of his crucifixion from Jericho. Maybe they were there. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, we don't know who all of these people were, but 120 people who would consider themselves the community of Jesus. They're together and they're praying. Luke makes a point of telling us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. This is the last time we see her in the New Testament, and I think it's significant that the last time we see Mary, she is numbered among the disciples of Jesus. She is, first and foremost, a follower of Jesus Christ, the Lord. We see that Jesus' brothers are there. In John chapter 7, they had, uh, John records that the, his brothers didn't believe in him either, and actually were kind of mocking him a little. So, you're the Messiah, shouldn't you act more like this? But now they are here with the followers of Jesus. What has transformed them? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus appeared personally, specifically, to his brother James. And I wonder if he appeared to the other brothers as well. I don't know. But it was the resurrected Jesus who transformed the eleven. Maybe it was the resurrected Jesus who encountered his brothers and then saw them come and believe and become a part of his community. We don't know, but we can guess. So the disciples and the women and Jesus' mother Mary and Jesus' brothers and probably others like Mary, Martha, Lazarus, these are the company of 120 who are together in Jerusalem and they are praying. The community of Jesus is a praying community. I want to notice two things about this praying and i want to mention them in reverse order from which luke mentions them and the first is that they devoted themselves to prayer they devoted themselves to prayer the word devoted shows up only three times in the book of acts and every time it is in relation to prayer the first time is here chapter one Then, chapter 2, verse 42, describes the life of the first 3,000 followers of Christ after Pentecost. And it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then in chapter 6, the the apostles themselves say, look, we're not going to get distracted with administration and ministry. We will devote ourselves to prayer And the ministry of the word. That's chapter 6 verse 4. Prayer was something that they devoted themselves to. Not just one of the activities that make up religious living. They devoted themselves to it. It was one of the things that would characterize the church as we'd see repeatedly in Acts. It was out of prayer that the gospel first went to the Gentiles. When Peter in chapter 10 went to Cornelius the Roman centurion. It was out of prayer and fasting and worship that Paul and Barnabas were first commissioned to be the the agents of Jesus to the Gentile Mediterranean world. In chapter 13, prayer was the church's standard response to crisis, to persecution. Chapters 4 and 12. They They were a people of prayer. They depended on it. They constantly sought God's direction, power, intervention through prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. And so it's no wonder that the book of Acts plays out that the, way that, the way that it does. With the gospel spreading like wildfire from Jerusalem to Rome. For the community of faith was always listening to God and responding obediently to him. So they devoted themselves to prayer right at the beginning. The second thing we notice about their praying is that they were united in prayer. That they prayed in one accord is the actual phrase. There was a fundamental unity to this group of followers of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what's meant in chapter 4, verse 32, which says that the full number of those who believed were one in heart and soul. They were like-minded. They were bound together. Even though there was much potential for division, You have the apostles of Jesus and the brothers of Jesus. I mean, they could have said, like, who's the more privileged group here? Who's closer? Who should be elevated to a greater position of leadership? You have Peter in this room. And I wouldn't be surprised if you had Joseph of Arimathea, who had, Peter had denied Jesus. Joseph had boldly gone to Pilate and asked for his body. You know, the women who had stayed at the cross versus the disciples who had fled. There could have been a lot of heated conversation around that, and even just between the men and the women. The Jewish practice of the day in the temple and in the synagogues were to keep the women separate because they were considered inferior. And yet those barriers were broken down in the early church. And so Galatians 3 says there's no longer male and female, all are one in Christ. So here you have the men and the women praying together in one accord. There could have been so many barriers up in that room that day, in those ten days. And yet they prayed united. They prayed in one accord. Jesus himself named unity as the mark of Christian authenticity. By this all will know that you are my disciples, he said, if you love one another. When you look at paper money, there are marks of authenticity. That you can only see when it's held up to a special light. And then you know that it's not counterfeit. It's the real deal. Christians have a mark of authenticity. And that mark is our one accordness. Our unity. Our love for one another. And so people can look at Christians. People can look at our church and ask the question, do they love one another? And if the answer is yes, then they can say, well, they must truly be the real deal. They must really be followers of Jesus. This gospel that they preach, there is something to it. Or they can ask, do they love one another? And if the answer is no, then they have the right to legitimately dismiss us and dismiss what we proclaim. Our mark of authenticity is not good preaching. It's not great music. It's not effective programs. People will know that we are disciples of Jesus if we love one another. If there is a one-accordness to our life together. Now, how are we doing at this? Now Don't look around at the congregation and say, how are they doing at this? Ask, how am I doing at this? Are you a loving presence in this congregation? Or are you critical? Do you encourage people? Or do you talk about them in their absence? Are you a patter on the back or a finder of faults? We had 14 people last weekend participate in our baptism and membership classes last weekend. And when somebody wants to pursue formal membership in the church, we let them know that one of the commitments that they are making to this congregation is to a lifestyle and attitude of love here at the church. And I also tell them that the church then makes a commitment to love them. To treat them with dignity and respect and kindness. Because we're the church of Jesus and love is who we are. Love is what we do. And so unity and one accordness is one of the things that is to define Jesus' people. And here in this very first look at the community of Jesus in Acts, we see their unity. And in this period of waiting after Jesus has left them and before the Holy Spirit comes down, ten days, it is spent devoted to prayer in one accord. What is prayer, by the way? It's not a religious exercise that requires deep theological insight and eloquent speech. Prayer is simply a conscious, intentional, two-way conversation with God, talking to him, He says, if you're anxious about anything, bring it to me in prayer. Offer thanks, confess your sins, but talk to God and and learn to listen to him as well. And this practice of prayer is, is the air that we breathe in our life with God. People who pray know Jesus better. They see the power of God at work in their lives. People who seldom pray are left confused by hardship. Because they never place themselves in a position to hear God say, trust me with this. Churches who pray see lives changed. Churches who pray have joy. Churches who seldom pray continually wonder why God doesn't seem to be present and active in the life of the church. You know, we're trying so hard, there's no fruit. Churches that don't pray ask those questions. In the change in our governance structure that we are in the midst of right now as a church, one of the primary roles of the the board of elders is going to be prayer. Maybe as much as half of their meetings devoted to prayer. Which is how it should be, I think. If we don't pray, how do we know what God wants us to do? How do we hear God saying to us, start a Bible study in this neighborhood? or pray for the healing of so-and-so, or get involved in ministry to India, or lighten up and choose joy, or have a service of repentance? How do we know what God is leading us to do if, if we're not listening, if we're not praying to him? And so the community of Jesus is a praying community. A few years back, I was participating in a series of classes on the subject of prayer, led by a layman in the church that I was attending at the time. And the guy who led the class spoke somewhat disparagingly of church leadership practices in general, and things like strategic thinking and mission statements and intentional planning and so on. And he said, is the church to be led from the boardroom or from the prayer closet? And he was implying, I think, that boardrooms are somehow unspiritual, but the fact is, the church needs to be led from both. That humbly seeking God in prayer and thinking wisely and planning well go, to, go together. And that the boardroom is to be a prayer closet. We need communication with God. We have to talk and listen. And then we lead together. We have wisdom and make decisions and plans. The boardroom is to be a prayer closet. And that's the direction that we want to move. That's what we want to become, uh, more and more become our reality in leadership. Because it's no accident that here in chapter 1, that this leadership decision that the apostles are about to make, concerning Matthias at the end of the chapter, and the events of Pentecost in chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, it's no accident that those two things arise out of a culture of prayer. So sometime in their 10 days of waiting and praying, Peter stands up, and calls for their attention brothers he says the scripture had to be fulfilled which the holy spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of david concerning judas who became a guide to those who arrested jesus for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry for it is written in the book of psalms may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office So two quotes from Psalm 69 and 109, respectively, both Psalms, which speak about the man who treats the innocent one unjustly, so kind of epitomized in Judas, who betrayed Jesus. So Peter quotes these two Psalms to preface his statement that Judas must be replaced among the 12 apostles. So out of their united prayer comes this conviction that this leadership action has to be taken. Now, question. Why was it necessary to replace Judas? Couldn't the 11 apostles just spearhead their commission to be Jesus' witnesses? Couldn't they just lead that project and do that? Well, back in the very beginnings of their history, God had called Abraham and made a covenant promise that God would make Abraham's descendants a great nation, out of which God would bless all the nations of the earth. And Abraham's grandson Jacob then had 12 sons, and the descendants of these 12 men would become the 12 tribes that make up the people of Israel. These 12 sons would be the patriarchs of God's chosen people, the community of God, through which God would not only reveal himself to the world, but actually act to redeem the world, to reconcile humanity, not just Israel, to himself. And it was an astonishing privilege, one of which the Jews were acutely and jealously conscious. So there were 12 tribes of God's people. And so for over a thousand years, this number 12 was the number of God's people. It symbolized the community of God's people. Then comes Jesus, this rabbi from Nazareth. And his teaching strikes a chord with people. It has divine authority, and people recognize that. Jesus is healing the sick. Jesus is casting out demons. Jesus is calming storms and raising the dead. And in a very short time, crowds of people begin to follow Jesus. They flock to him. They're swarming around him. Everywhere he goes, crowds of people. And at one point, about a year in his ministry... Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus goes off by himself and spends a night devoting himself to prayer. And then in the morning, he calls together all of his followers and handpicks 12 of them and designates them apostles, which means sent ones. They are Jesus' ambassadors. Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is creating a new community of God's people centered around himself, for he was not one of the twelve, he was lord of the twelve, master of the twelve. A new Israel, a new people of God was being created. Now this is pretty radical and revolutionary. It's one of the things that, that drew hostile attention to Jesus from the religious leaders. And now here in Acts 1, the apostles, now 11 are about to go public with their proclamation of Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the fulfillment of the covenant of God as Lord and Messiah of God's people. And the church of Jesus Christ will be the new Israel and membership in God's people is not now a matter of cultural heritage or ethnic identity, but it's a matter of relationship to Jesus. And so in fulfillment of this Old Testament picture, there needs to be for the symbolism to have meaning to the people around them. And so Peter says, One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning right from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us, that is, join the eleven, a witness to his resurrection. In other words, one of the 120 now has to become one of the twelve. There are apparently two men who fit the bill. Joseph, called Barsabbas, also called Justice, and Matthias. And then the community again prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. I want to notice a couple of things here as well, crucial things. What were the criteria for this apostleship? They didn't just take out an ad. Apostle wanted, please report to upper room. This was literally a world-changing, eternal venture that they were about to be launched on. And not just anyone could step up and give leadership to it. Not even just anyone among the 120. Jesus' brother James, apparently not. Not Lazarus. Not even Mary, the mother of Jesus. So who would, this, who would this apostle be? Well, there are three criteria to be met. First, it had to be somebody who had been a witness to the life and ministry of Jesus right from the beginning, right from the baptism of John, through his, resur- through his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. And there were, again, at least two of them who fit that criteria. Now, I want to think about that for a second. We normally think of the twelve only of being Jesus' followers. But there were others who had been a part of the company of Jesus right from the beginning. These two men apparently had been there at Jesus' baptism. So they were part of the community of Jesus even before some of the twelve, like Matthew and Philip and even Peter. So, but we never read their names, though. They'd signed on in some fashion right from the get-go, but we never read their names. They were certainly among those that Luke mentions, I think, in chapter 10, When Jesus sent out 72, two by two, I imagine that Joseph, Barsabbas, and Matthias were two of those. They were two of the faithful. For in John chapter 6, we read that a lot of Jesus' followers abandoned him at that point because they found some of his teachings to be difficult, to be hard. But Joseph, Barsabbas, and Matthias didn't go. They stayed. They remained a part of things. But we never read their names. They're the the quiet, invisible faithful. And it's because they had been with Jesus right from the beginning that they qualified to be apostles. Now why was this so crucial? Because you can't witness to what you don't know. You cannot witness to what you don't know. A witness in a courtroom is a witness precisely because they know something. They're experts in the subject matter, or they've seen something, or they've heard something, but they're there because they know what it is they are to witness to. And we, too, are called to be witnesses of Jesus. And we, too, can only witness to what we know. If Jesus isn't real to us, then the very best that we can do is preach morality or preach religion. We can argue academically, but we can't witness to Jesus. Not really. Not with any power, not with any real conviction or passion. And our church, we say, exists to know Christ and to make him known. And the truth is that only those who know Christ can make him known. So the question is how well do you know Jesus? Do you know him better than you once did? We know him by his word, the Bible. We know him by prayer, by talking and listening. We know him by engaging with his people, the church. We know him by serving the poor in his name. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that if you minister to even the least of these, you're ministering to me. If we want to engage with Jesus, we do it by serving those who need, who have need. So how well do we know Jesus? And again, that's why we so consciously want to be all about Jesus here. So that we'll know him and make him known. And the apostle who would rep- rep- replace Judas had to have known Jesus through his life and ministry and death and resurrection. That's the first criterion. The second criterion had to do with the heart. When they took these two candidates to the Lord by praying, the very first thing they say is, You, Lord, who know the heart, the heart. Mattered. It was not just enough for them to have the facts. It wasn't good enough that they could pass the Jesus 101 final. How many baskets of bread and fish were left over after Jesus fed the 5,000? Answer 12. What was the name of the blind man that Jesus healed as he was leaving Jericho? Answer Bartimaeus. They could have answered all those questions. You know what? Judas could have answered all of those questions. He'd been with Jesus throughout his ministry. But it's not enough to just be biblically literate or theologically literate. There is something about the inner life that matters. The posture towards God, character, humility. You remember when when the prophet Samuel was sent by God to anoint the next king of Israel? And he goes and eventually anoints David. But first he sees all of David's brothers who have perfect hair and are well-muscled and tall, good-looking. They look like warrior types very kingly looking and Samuel says whoa one of these got to be the king just look at them and God checks him in his spirit and says careful you're looking at outside stuff I'm looking at the heart I don't see like you see and you're not seeing the things that I see I look at the heart and so God chose David who was a man after God's own heart you know just be even in our Christian media driven world be careful of charisma charisma and gifts and size of ministry and perceived religiousness, perceived good works and faith. Some are genuine, some are not. But God looks at the heart. The heart matters. The Bible says in Proverbs, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. How is your heart? Because the life that you are living right now is flowing out of your heart. Whatever your heart is, whatever lives in there, you're living out of that. Guard your heart. Galatians chapter 5 says that you can recognize people whose heart demonstrate a consistent posture towards God and, and love of goodness, you see, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. These are the kinds of things that arise out of a heart that is Godward. But the truth is, only God knows the heart. So the 120 prayed, Lord. And whenever the apostles say Lord, they mean Jesus specifically, not God generically. Lord, we trust these guys. But you know their hearts, so you choose. And the Lord chose. That doesn't mean that Joseph Barsabbas had a bad heart. He almost certainly did not. But the Lord knew the hearts of Matthias and Joseph, and for reasons of his own, chose Matthias. And that's the third criterion for this apostleship. He had to be chosen by Jesus. Remember Acts chapter 1 verse 2. When Jesus had given commands to the apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus had chosen the 11. Jesus would choose the 12. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And the, he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now 12. And one more thing. In this passage. Did you catch the nature of the ministry to which he was called? What did the apostles consider the central aspect of their call? Peter said, one of these must become with us a witness to his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus was the central declaration of the church of Acts. It was his resurrection that proved to them that he was the Christ, the Son of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says it was by his resurrection that Jesus was declared in power to be the Son of God. And so the apostles repeatedly testified to the resurrection of Jesus. And it shows up in every sermon in Acts. The very first sermon ever preached by Peter at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are witnesses. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 10. 13, 17 verse 3, 17 and verse 31. Whenever the community of Jesus is talking about Jesus to the world, they're talking about his resurrection. They're talking about the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth, on whom was the stamp of approval of God, crucified, has been raised to life. And that's how we know that forgiveness is available in him. Because by raising Jesus from the dead, God put the ultimate stamp of approval on him it is the resurrection by which we know that, that we believe the things that jesus said about himself about the kingdom about god what it means to be forgiven about following him about judgment at the end of time it's the resurrection that seals the credibility of jesus and so they always talked about his resurrection and that is why it is so important that matthias had to be a part of jesus community right from the beginning Because it wasn't enough to say, I saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion. The apostles had to be able to say, the Jesus who was crucified and risen is Jesus of Nazareth, whom I saw and heard and touched and walked with for three years. I knew him very well, and I know him now. I saw him, and he is alive, no question. There could be no room for doubt, and Matthias could say that the end of Matthew 28, we see the Apostles see Jesus after his resurrection, and some doubted. It says, could this really be Jesus alive? But after 40 days, when there had been ample interaction with Jesus, during which he offered many convincing proofs that he was alive, as we heard last week, there was no doubt. The disciples, the the Jesus whom they had spent considerable time with over 40 days, they knew was the very same Jesus whom they had known for three years and walked with. So the Apostle John wrote later these words in 1 John 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. And so our faith is grounded in certainty. We have this record of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the word of God from those who were eyewitnesses of his life and resurrection. And the ministry, again, of the church, of the community of Jesus, is to witness to the living Jesus, the living Jesus whom we know. The risen Jesus whom we have experienced, that is who we witness to. And we do it from a place of united, loving, one accorded prayer. Which is a simple way of saying, together we seek God. That is the church. We're going to move here now in our service to a time of singing and praying and to the celebration of communion remembering the death of jesus on the cross to pay for our sins and reconcile us to god and i gave this message early in the service quite deliberately so that we would have this time now to respond to it and so for the remainder of our time together please use this time to give thought to these questions do i know jesus I want a deeper experience of and love for the living, present Jesus. I want to know him. Lord, help me. Do I know Jesus? Second question, how is my heart? Is there anything in my attitude, anything in my character, anything in my inner life that I need to pay attention to? Lord, help me. Third question, do I love the church and the people of the church? Lord, show me myself in this area. Show me what is my first, best, next step in strengthening us in our one-accordness. The book of Acts is about the fact that the word of God concerning Jesus Christ increases and the church of Jesus multiplies, grows as Christians